Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Chase Ifflin. I'm the Minister of Community and Connection here at Redemption Church. And we are continuing our series in the book of Acts this morning um, that we started back in the fall and we plan to wrap up sometime this summer. Can I be honest? This was a a really hard sermon for me to write this week. Uh, You can ask my small group on Tuesday about the venting I was doing about uh, starting and then deleting everything and starting again, then deleting everything and starting again. And our staff likes to give me a hard time because when I know I'm preaching, I usually start working on a sermon like two weeks in advance. And by Monday of the week I'm preaching, I've usually got it almost all the way finished. But this week it was Wednesday morning. I was sitting down to start writing from scratch again. Uh, Wednesday morning would be early in the week for Jeff to start a sermon. It's like the 11th hour in the week for me to start a sermon. Um, If you've heard me preach at all, you probably know that I like neat and tidy sermon outlines. I like three main point or three points. I like the clear logical arguments, and um, some of you probably appreciate those things. Some of you probably think it's really boring. Um, but the main reason I struggle with this sermon so much is because this morning we're going to zoom in on a couple of stories from the Book of Acts and look at prayer and the role that prayer plays in these stories. And the problem I was having is that prayer doesn't fit my neat tidy outlines and clear, logical arguments. Prayer is one of the biggest mysteries in the universe, and I don't know about you, but I don't like mystery. The subject of prayer raises all kinds of questions for us, questions like, if God knows everything, why do we pray? Does prayer actually work? Does prayer change things? Does prayer change God's mind? Why doesn't God answer my prayers? And as much as what I wanted to do was take the next 30 minutes and succinctly and convincingly answer each one of those questions for you, I just can't do that. And it doesn't mean that there aren't good, rational, theologically true answers to those questions, because there are So much has been written on the subject of prayer over the last 2,000 years. Much of it's been written by brilliant philosophers and theologians. And so what I'm not saying is that if you think really deeply about prayer, you're just going to come to the conclusion that it's illogical, it's hopeless, and you should stop praying. But what I am saying is that if you think really deeply about prayer, all of the theologically correct answers that I could give you probably won't be completely satisfying to you, which was my experience this week. And that's because when we try to understand prayer, we're trying to understand one of the greatest mysteries of the universe. And on one hand, that was really unsatis- it's really unsatisfying uh, to me to call prayer a mystery, but it's also comforting in some other ways as well, because if God exists, and if he wants to have communication with us human beings, then we probably shouldn't expect that this communication that we call prayer would be something we could just be able to neatly and succinctly describe. Uh, text messaging... Is, is a really incredible invention. Um, it would probably blow the minds of our great-great-grandparents, but 
you can understand text messaging if you study it enough. You, you can learn how it works and describe to someone exactly what's going on there. But prayer is so much more an incredible means of communication than text messaging because if we're, we're talking about prayer, we're saying that prayer is communication between an infinite, all-knowing, all-powerful being who created all things and exists outside of time and space and us, limited creatures who need food and water and sleep just to survive. And so it actually is a little bit comforting to me that we can't describe prayer because uh, describe prayer fully and completely because what we're describing here is something amazing and incredible that we should never expect to fully wrap our minds around. And so I want to start there this morning just by saying that prayer is this mystery that none of us can fully understand. But then in just a minute, we're going to open up the book of Acts and we're going to see some really powerful stories. And the way Luke describes these stories, he seems to suggest that prayer is what causes God to powerfully act and to do these things, which then immediately forces us back into all of those questions again, like, did their prayers cause God to do this, or was he just going to do it anyway? Will certain things happen in my life if I pray the right way, but they're not going to happen if I don't? In other words, we want to know, does prayer actually work? Because if prayer does work, then we have the greatest motivation in the world to do it and to do it often. I don't know about you, if I had to answer the prayer, the question, does prayer work, I'd probably say sometimes, but sometimes I'm just not really sure. But what if one of our problems with prayer is that we're actually thinking about prayer wrongly if we're coming at it in terms of this question, does it work or does it not work? One of our friends in our small group on Tuesday shared a short little essay from C.S. Lewis that he wrote on prayer where that's exactly what Lewis says. He says, the very question, does prayer work, puts us in the wrong frame of mind from the outset. Work as if it were magic or a machine, something that functions automatically. And what Lewis is driving at here is that the question of does prayer work assumes that prayer is the type of thing that would either work or not work. But not everything in our life operates that way. When you press the power button on your TV, the TV either turns on or it doesn't. It works or it doesn't. If you stick your key in your car's ignition and turn it, the car either starts or it doesn't. It works or it doesn't. Because TVs and cars are machines that function automatically. And therefore, the question, does it work, applies to those types of things. But there are many things in life where that question, does it work, doesn't really make a lot of sense. Um, If you were listening to someone who's raised kids to adulthood talk about their parenting strategy and then you ask them, did it work, they're not just going to be able to say, yes, it did, or no, it didn't. Because parenting is not automatic. They could tell you, here were some positive outcomes, here were some things we wish would have happened differently. Overall, we were pleased with the way our children were raised, but you can't just say, yes, it worked, or no, it didn't, because parenting isn't magic, it isn't a machine, it's not something automatic where you put in an input and automatically get out this output. And prayer is the same type of thing. So when we come to prayer wanting to know, does it work or does it not work, That's the wrong question to ask because prayer isn't something automatic. It's not magic. It's not a machine. And so whether we like it or not, we're approaching prayer the wrong way if we just want to know, well, does it work or does it not? And so one of the questions I want to answer today is if prayer isn't magic and it's not a machine, it's not something that functions automatically, then what is it? 
Well, before we jump in, uh, let me just say a couple more things up, up front. Prayer is a mystery. It's something we'll never fully understand, but the Bible does clearly teach a couple of things that we know for certain about prayer. Here's two things the Bible teaches. God is sovereign over all things, and yet our prayers matter. And even though it's mysterious to us how those two truths fit together, it's also a mystery that Tim Keller says really makes a lot of practical sense and should encourage us. Here's what Keller says. He says, the teaching is that our prayers matter. We have not because we ask not. And yet, God's wise plan is sovereign and infallible. These two facts are true at once, and how that is possible is a mystery to us. We feel that if God is completely in control, then our actions don't matter, or vice versa. But think how practical this is. If we believe that God was in charge and our actions meant nothing, it would lead to discouraged passivity. If, on the other hand, we really believe that our actions changed God's plan, it would lead to paralyzing fear. If both are true, however, we have the greatest incentive for diligent effort, and yet we can always sense God's everlasting arms under us. So what Keller means is that if God is sovereign and our prayers don't matter, then life is really depressing. But if our prayers controlled God, then life would be really terrifying. We'd have to pray nonstop to make sure that nothing bad ever happened to us and to make sure that we would get everything we want in life because it would be totally up to us. And so it's encouraging to me that even in something I can't fully understand like prayer, we can glimpse the wisdom of God in designing things to be this way. I know that was a long introduction, uh, but honestly, that was some of what I was wrestling with this week and felt like I just needed to kind of get that out there before we dive in. And so if it was helpful for you, that's great, uh, but it was helpful for me. So here's what we're going to see in this passage in Acts. Prayer is one of the means God uses to bring things to pass in this world. And that means that when we pray, we are not just talking to the air. God isn't merely doing something in us that has no effect outside of us. But when we pray, we are co-laboring with God to bring about his kingdom in our lives, in others' lives, and in the world. So with that being said, let's jump in to Acts chapter 12. Um, as you're turning there, I want to make one quick disclaimer. We're getting to a point in the book of Acts where we're starting to see a lot of the same type of stories over and over again. Um, the gospel is spreading into new areas, but the stories of healing and of salvation, of, of preaching are, are the same. And so um, we know that you guys don't want to hear the same sermons every week, and we don't want to preach the same sermons every week. So there's going to be a few weeks here coming up in the second half of Acts where instead of unpacking everything in this story, we're just going to zoom in on one or two aspects of the story. And that's what we're going to do this week with prayer. So there's, there's a lot here that is really powerful and really good, and we're just going to have to totally skip over it. Um, to zoom in on prayer. So that's not our normal practice, but that's what we're going to do here with the second half of Acts. So Acts chapter 12, verse 1, um, I'll read through verse 19 to start. Acts 12 says, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. 
And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in his cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. And when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. So we find ourselves back in Jerusalem at the beginning of chapter 12, and once again, the Christians in Jerusalem are facing persecution. Um, this time, it's at the hands of Herod, which is not the same Herod that was involved in Jesus's trial and execution. This is the next Herod in the line of Roman rulers in Judea. And we learn that Herod has had James, the brother of John, killed, which pleased the Jews, and so he decides to arrest Peter as well. And it seems like Herod probably knew about Peter's previous prison escape that we read about in Acts 5, because the way Luke describes how Peter was guarded is just over the top. There's four squads of soldiers, there's two sentries at the door. Peter is chained not just to one man, but to two men. And so it seems like this hopeless situation that Luke is painting for us here that's going to result in Peter experiencing the same fate as James. Except that Luke also gives us some foreshadowing in verse 5 when he says, Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And so we read that during what was going to be Peter's last night in prison, that very night, Luke says, behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter, woke him up, told him to get up. The chains fell off his hands and the angel leads him out of the prison. Peter didn't think it was real, he thought it was a vision, but then when he finally is out in the street, he comes to himself and he heads to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark. It's interesting that um, there's people gathered at this house and they're praying, and we don't know what time it is, but we do know that Peter was sound asleep, so it's, it, the assumption here is that it's late at night, and yet there's people gathered together at this house praying. And Peter knocked, and Rhoda, the servant, heard Peter's voice. She's so excited, she runs back and tells the others, and they don't even believe that what they've been praying for has really um, come to pass. They don't believe that God has answered their prayer. Eventually, they let Peter in. Peter tells them to make sure James knows what happened. This is James, the brother of Jesus, not James, the brother of John, that was just killed. And then Peter escapes from Jerusalem and goes elsewhere. So what do we learn about prayer from this story? 
Well, if we go back up to how Luke set the scene, it looks totally hopeless. James has been killed. Peter's been arrested. He's being guarded more closely than ever. As soon as the Passover is over, Peter will be led out and killed. But then Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes verse 5, where he says, Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And so Luke is clear in his presentation of the way he's presenting this story to us that part of the means of Peter's escape from prison was the prayers of this church. There's this clear connection here between Peter is in prison, headed for death, yet the people prayed, and now he's being released. I don't think there's any way to come to this story and come to any other conclusion than that prayer was one of the means that brought Peter out of prison. But then at the same time in the story, we also see the sovereignty of God. We, we see the initiative that the angel uses in rescuing Peter. It's not like Peter just found the guard's key in his pocket and, and unlocked the, the gate and unlocked his chains and left. The angel, God using this angel is driving this whole thing here. And so I don't think there's any way to read this story and come to any other conclusion than that God, by his power and by his will, rescued Peter from prison. And so we come to the great mystery. Was it the prayer of God's people that freed Peter, or was it God? And of course, the right answer is yes. This story illustrates the mystery that is taught all throughout the Bible. On the one hand, the Bible clearly affirms that God is sovereignly in control of all things. Paul says that God is the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Lamentations 3.37 says, who can even speak a word unless God commands it. And the very nature of God taught throughout all scripture, beginning with Genesis 1-1, that God created everything, teaches that God is a being who is supremely in control of all things. And yet, on the other hand, there's verses like James 5-16, which say, the prayer of a righteous person has great power. Jesus himself said crazy things about prayer, like if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Or therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. We also have a number of stories like this one in Acts 12 that illustrate this tension for us in narrative form. Exodus 32 is this famous example. Um, in Exodus 32, Moses goes up the mountain, um, out, up Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. And while he's up on the mountain, the people make a golden calf to worship instead of God. And God tells Moses, I'm going to destroy the people. But then Moses prays to God, and verse 14 says, the Lord relented from the disaster he had spoken on the people. Other translations say, God changed his mind. Despite the fact that Moses wrote the book of Numbers, where Moses says, God is not a man, that he should change his mind. Just one more, you have the story of Elijah, where he prays that it wouldn't rain for three years, and it doesn't rain. And then he prays that it would rain, and it rains. And James cites this story as evidence that prayer has power. But then if you read the story in, in context in 1 Kings 17, you see that everything Elijah does, his prayers, his words, his actions are directed by God in that story. So did Elijah control the rain, or did God control the rain? And so these two things, the power of prayer and the sovereignty of God, are in tension. And honestly, one of the easiest things we can do when we face tension like this is just try and resolve it. Pick one side or the other and make it easier and say, well, this is clearly how it is. But I don't think we can do that. Because if on, the other hand, on one hand we say, well, we pray 
because God commands it and because it changes us, but it doesn't actually change anything out there. We'd have a hard time reconciling that statement with James 5.16 or with Jesus' bold teaching on prayer or with the stories like Exodus 32 and Acts 12. The Bible seems to clearly teach that our prayers have power and that they change things. So then, well, should we go the other way and say, well, we pray because our prayers change the course of human history, and so certain things are going to happen if we pray rightly, and they're not going to pray happen if we don't pray rightly, and so we have control over how history unfolds? I don't think we can say that either, because verses like Ephesians 1.11 and Lamentations 3.17 and Numbers 23.19 and everything the Bible teaches about God seems to clearly state that God is in control over all things, and we can't change his mind or his plans. And so I think the biblically faithful way to think about prayer is to live with the tension instead of resolving it. I don't like tension between two ideas that seem to be opposite to me, but I think the reality is that truth is often not found on one side or the other, but in the middle of tension. And I think that's true when it comes to prayer. So if this is the tension we're left with, our, the power of our prayer and the sovereignty of God what can we say about what prayer is? What, what else can we say about prayer? This statement comes uh, directly from R.C. Sproul's little book, Does Prayer Change Things? And, and I think this is the best explanation we can give of what prayer is, what prayer does. Sproul says, things change. So does prayer change things? Yes, things change. And they change according to God's sovereign will, which he exercises through secondary means and secondary activities. The prayer of his people is one of the means he uses to bring things to pass in this world. So maybe that's satisfying to you, maybe it's not, but Sproul doesn't resolve the tension. He leans into the tension and tries to give us clarity by saying everything that happens in this world happens because of God's sovereign will. However, at the same time, the things that happen in this world happen through secondary means like you and I. What Sproul is highlighting for us is that the way God has chosen to operate in the world is according to his will, but most often is through means outside of himself, like human beings and our actions and our prayers. Meaning instead of acting on his own in the world without us, God actually invites secondary agents to act with him in the world. So for example, as soon as Jesus was raised from the dead on that first Easter Sunday that we'll celebrate next week, God could have just, in the twinkling of an eye, caused divine knowledge to, of Jesus and his resurrection and faith to spring up in every human being all around the world just like that. But that's not what he did. He used the disciples and he formed them into the early church. And then through the events we've been looking at since September, they birthed, the gospel spreads, the church is birthed, and more and more people come to trust in saving faith in Jesus. And so the gospel spread through God's will, but it spread through human beings. The way God works in the world is that he uses secondary means to accomplish his purposes. And our prayers, just like our actions, are one of those means that God uses to unfold history. And so at this point, we could jump back in with all of the deep philosophical questions that I want to ask, like, so if God wants something to happen, but I don't pray for it, is it still going to happen? 
Will God just override the fact that I didn't pray for it? Will God invite someone else to pray for it and then it can happen or will it just not happen? And again, we could come up with good philosophical, theological answers to those questions, but they're probably never going to fully satisfy us because prayer is not an automatic machine. It's a bit of a mystery. But instead of moving immediately into all of those questions, we could also just sit with the fact that God could do anything he wanted to do in this world without our help. And yet he's invited us in our actions and in our prayers to co-labor and participate with him in the world, which is an incredible privilege. C.S. Lewis, again, says, when we pray, we have not advised or changed God's mind, that is his overall purpose, but that purpose will be realized in different ways according to the actions, including the prayers of his creatures. For God seems to do nothing of himself which he can possibly delegate to his creatures. He commands us to do slowly and blunderingly what he could do perfectly and in the twinkling of an, of an eye. He allows us to neglect what he would have us do or to fail. We are not mere recipients or spectators. We are either privileged to share in the game or compelled to collaborate in the work. So Lewis is reminding us that God can accomplish his purposes in the world without us. God doesn't need us, and not only that, God could actually do it a lot better without us, and yet he's chosen to let us participate and share in his work of making all things new in the world, and one of the ways we're privileged to participate with him is in our prayers. And so we pray for ourselves. We pray that we would know God more deeply, that we would obey him more fully. We pray for our family and friends. We pray that their faith would grow or that God would cause faith to spring up in them for the first time. We pray for big things. We pray for small things, working with God in the minutia of the day and also in the overall trajectory of our lives and in, other way, in others' lives. We're co-laboring with God in his kingdom. When we look around and we see things that don't look like the kingdom of God, we see broken marriages or illnesses or addictions or poverty, we should pray that God would make right what is wrong in those places. And we should do what we have in our power to do in order to co-labor with God in our actions to, to make right what is wrong, but ultimately knowing that whatever happens is not up to us, but up to God and his sovereign purposes. God has invited us to co-labor with him in the world through our prayers. This understanding of prayer, not as magic or a machine, but as co-laboring with God, uh, also means that we shouldn't expect all of our prayers to be answered. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with us or that we don't have the right formula. It doesn't mean that there's always a silver lining we have to find in unanswered prayer. It just means that prayer isn't automatic, and part of prayer being a mystery is that not all of our prayers are answered. We even get a glimpse of this in, our, in Acts 12 this morning because we can assume the church probably prayed for James when he was arrested, and yet James was killed, and Peter was freed. So prayer is a mystery, but it's also an incredible privilege because prayer is one of the ways God invites us into the work that he's doing in our lives and in the world. Well, let's pick back up in Acts, uh, read a little bit further. Um, I'll start again in, in verse 20 of chapter 12. It says, now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. 
On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. This is a crazy story, and this is one of those things that we're just going to have to leave aside and and move on because we don't have time. Uh, The only thing I'll say is Herod is held up here as a, a deliberate contrast to the Christians in this story. The Christians are praying and relying on God's power um, in their lives, and Herod is clearly relying on his own power, and it leads to his downfall. So let's keep going. Chapter 13. Um, Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. From there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And so again, another crazy and powerful story is Barnabas and Saul um, encounter this false prophet called Bar-Jesus who opposes the gospel message and then is, uh, is turned blind with the result that the proconsul, the governor in this region um, in the island, believes in Jesus and repents and turns and trusts him. Um, there's so much we have to lay aside again in this story, including this is the first time where um, Saul starts being called Paul. Um, but let's zoom in on the role of prayer again, which we see in verse 3. It says, the, the church is gathered here in Antioch and says, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And so the scene has shifted from chapter 12 in Jerusalem, now back in Antioch, but the activity of the church hasn't changed. The church is still deeply committed to this practice of prayer. And the result of this prayer is that they send Barnabas and Saul off together for the first of Saul's missionary journeys that would lead to the gospel spreading around much of the known world at the time. I doubt the church had any idea that when they prayed these prayers, they were co-laboring with God to explode the message of Jesus around the known world. In many ways, you and I, 2,000 years later, are a part of the answer to these prayers as we've received the gospel here in America 2,000 years later. 
And so what we see in this story is that the co-laboring prayers of the church in Antioch results in the explosive transformation, really, of the entire world as person after person comes to faith in Christ. We've talked a lot in this sermon series about what it looks like to live on mission in our city, just like the early church did um, in the first century in the book of Acts. We talked about being a life-giving presence in our city and boldly proclaiming Jesus in our city. But if our plan for living on mission in our city is all about us going out and doing those things, then we've missed half of the plan. Because what we see here in Acts is that our life-giving presence and our bold gospel proclamation needs to be accompanied by earnest prayer for the salvation and the renewal of individuals and of our city. And what we see in this story and, and all over the New Testament is that prayer goes before, beside, and behind gospel proclamation when the church sees explosive growth. And we talk a lot about our vision for our church. We want to see everyday people wake up to deep, meaningful life in Christ. We want people all over Edmond, people who grew up in the church but are not experiencing the fullness of life that is available when someone surrenders everything to Jesus, or uh, the increasing number of people in our city who want nothing to do with Jesus but are also led to despair by what life without Jesus is like. We want both of those people, we want all types of people, everyone in our city to wake up to the reality that Jesus is Lord and that life lived under the lordship of Jesus is the best life there is and the only path to life that never ends. I love that vision. I want nothing more than to see that vision come to fruition in our city. I hope part of the reason that you're at our church is because you love our vision and want to see that come to reality as well. And I believe that God loves our vision and that it's his will to carry out this vision in our city as people wake up to deep, meaningful life in Christ. But at the same time, because what I know about God and how he acts in the world, I also know that he's looking for secondary agents to get the job done. God could revive our city in the twinkle of an eye, but that's not how he's chosen to work. He's looking for human agents like you and I to bring renewal to Edmund. And he's not just looking for people who get excited about renewal or for people who will spend hours working towards renewal. He's looking for people who will pray for renewal, who will earnestly, consistently, and unceasingly pray for God's kingdom to come in our city. I don't believe that God will do the mighty work that we all want to see happen through our church if we have sound teaching, passionate worship, authentic community, and sacrificial service, but are not at the same time banging down heaven's door with our fervent and persistent prayers for renewal in our city. So will you join me in praying for our city? Will you pray for people who attend church every Sunday in our city but don't have a deep faith in Jesus to wake up to deep, meaningful life? Will you pray for those who want nothing to do with Jesus to come to the end of their rope and realize that they need a savior outside of themselves and be captivated by God's love for them in Christ? Will you pray for college students right here on this campus to come to saving faith in Jesus? Will you pray for our specific downtown neighborhood where we're building our church building and pray that every person who eats, works, plays, and lives in downtown Edmond would know Jesus and the life that only Jesus gives? 
Will you pray for people who live in the existing homes around our building and for those who will move into the Lark and the apartments next door, that those who live around our building but don't gather to worship on Sundays would find themselves in our building on a Sunday morning? And then when they do, would you pray that God does a mighty work in their lives? I don't believe God will do a mighty work through our church if we don't pray, but I also believe that God will do a mighty work if we do pray. Because that's what these stories teach us. Peter was in chains, headed for death, but earnest prayer was made for him, and he was miraculously free. Barnabas and Saul were sent out to try to convince people all around the world to believe that a dead Jewish guy named Jesus was actually their savior, and people actually believed them. I don't know exactly why or how, but what I do know is that when God's people pray, God's power follows. And I want to find out what happens if we pray for God's power to come in our city in our day. Don't you? One more thing we learn from these stories and then uh, we'll wrap up. As I was reading, there were two kind of minor things that stood out to me that I think are actually pretty significant. Um, One is that we get this picture of Peter in prison and it's the night before he's going to be executed and yet he's sleeping. I don't know about you, but if I was about to be killed in just a few hours, I don't think I would be able to sleep, and yet Peter is able to sleep. The second thing is that the church is gathered in Antioch, they're worshiping, and then the Spirit says, send Barnabas and Saul out on this missionary journey, and Barnabas and Saul, just like that, are like, okay, we will go. They're willing to leave everything in an instant. Um, This isn't the first time they'll do it, it's not the last time they'll do it, they just go. And what jumped out to me about Peter, Barnabas, and Saul, and I'm sure it's true of all of the unnamed Christians in this story as well, is that they had a deep, unshakable, personal faith in God. The only way that you sleep soundly hours before being executed is if you're sure that uh, your death is not the end of your life, but the beginning of real life. The only way that you can uproot everything in your life and go tell people about Jesus is if you believe that Jesus is the most important thing that's ever happened to you and that nothing is more important in the world than other people coming to know him. And so what I think we see here is that before we co-labor with God in prayer to bring about his kingdom in the world, we have to have an authentic, abiding, intimate relationship with God ourselves through Jesus. And so if you're here this morning and you don't have that, the invitation for you isn't necessarily to pray for the renewal of our city, it's to pray for the renewal of your own heart and to trust that Jesus is more than able to do so. Or maybe you're here today and you consider yourself a Christian, but your experience is not one of personal, relational connection with God. Again, prayer is one of God's primary means of taking our head knowledge about him and cultivating a real relationship with him. So wherever you're at in your faith journey this morning, if you're hungry to grow in your practice of prayer, just a few things I want to mention briefly. One is we have several copies of two books out on the table outside this door to Constitution Hall. Um, One is Paul Miller's book, A Praying Life, which is a great book on prayer. Um, The other is R.C. Sproul's tiny little book, Does Prayer Change Things? Um, Those are totally free if you want one. There's not very many, so it's first come, first serve. Um, If you're sitting on this side of the room, you have a major advantage. So if you're on that side, you got to run quickly. But um, those are two good books on prayer. Um, Pick one up if if, um, that would be helpful for you. 
Another thing I encourage you to do is to invite others into your desire to grow in prayer. So tell a few friends in your small group that you want to grow in your practice of prayer and then make time to pray with them. Make time to share the experiences you're having and praying individually and encourage one another in your practice of prayer. We also have a church prayer group that meets on uh, Wednesday, on Thursdays from noon to 1 um, in our office space at Vault 405 in downtown Edmond, and everyone is welcome to come pray with us on Thursdays. Whether you've never prayed in a group before or you've been praying in a group for 80 years, we would love to have you praying with us on Thursdays. And then lastly, just pray. Prayer isn't easy. But as we do it, we learn and we grow. And so uh, maybe start by blocking out time each day to pray, or maybe just one block a week to pray. Uh, D.A. Carson says, much praying is not done because we do not plan to pray. Um, and that's so true. We're not going to work out if we don't plan to work out. We're probably not going to pray if we don't plan to pray. But then at the same time, don't limit praying to just some set-aside time each day. Prayer can be as simple as conversations with God throughout your day when needs arise, when thoughts of God or when struggles come to your mind. Prayer is a mystery that I can't fully explain, but I just want to say that it's a practice that's worth it. I've certainly got a long way to go when it comes to growing in prayer. I don't think it's something that anyone ever masters, but for me, it's been one of the primary things that has taken my head knowledge about God and cultivated a personal relationship with God. And when God answers bold and specific prayers and we see God's power move, there's nothing else like it. And so prayer isn't easy. Sometimes it feels like a waste of time, but it's also become one of the things that I most look forward to. And I just want to encourage you, if you're not praying or not praying often, but you want to, to, to start and invite others in. And if you are praying regularly, just keep it up. Let's pray and let's watch as God moves. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would not keep the mystery of prayer and the questions that we have about prayer, that, that, that those things would not keep us from praying. God, I pray that you would help us know what an incredible privilege it is that you have invited us to work with you in this world. I pray that you would teach us to pray boldly. I pray that you would teach us to pray for the things that you want to do in this world. And then I, I pray that as we pray, that your power would come behind us, beside us, that you would do amazing things in our lives and in our city. It's in Jesus' name.